Um, regeneration, the move from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. The spirit enters an unregenerate believer and they become regenerate. Instead of hating God, they love God. They can submit in obedience. They have faith. These are all byproducts of regeneration. It's a new heart. It's a new being. You become new, new affection, new disposition. That's regeneration. So keep that in mind. Tonight we're in verse 7 of Matthew 5. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now tonight... We will cover a lot of different topics because we are dealing with very high-octane theology. This is really quite a rough verse when we get down to it. Because people will look at this verse, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, and they'll say that it proves works-based righteousness. Merit mongers will say that you're saved by showing mercy. They'll say that if you show mercy to people, God will give you mercy also. That's what the verse is teaching. That's what the people say. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. It's works-based salvation. But when people do this, they brutalize this verse. They beat this verse into oblivion to where it's not even recognizable in its current context. Remember, the Beatitudes are a path from salvation, not a path to salvation. Jesus is not giving us the first four Beatitudes and saying, look at what a Christian is. This is a Christian. Look at the first four Beatitudes. This is what a Christian looks like. And then in the fifth Beatitude saying, this is how you become a Christian. That's madness. That's nonsense. It doesn't fit in the context. This is not a works-based salvation verse. Blessed are the merciful because they have already been given mercy. We've already been given mercy. We've received mercy, and we will continue to obtain mercy in the future. That's what the verse is teaching. This verse does not teach that we save ourselves by being merciful. I also said three weeks ago that the Beatitudes are a lot like a ladder. They show a a progression of the Christian character. It's logical. You take step from step to step, and everyone starts the ladder at regeneration. They start at regeneration. They start at poor in spirit, spiritual bankruptcy. Blessed are the poor in spirit. These people are the people who come to realize they lack righteousness. They lack the righteousness of God. Blessed are those who mourn. These are those same poor in spirit people. They are the same poor in spirit people, but now they hate their lack of righteousness. They despise their sin. They hate their lack of righteousness. They've just progressed the ladder. They become meek. Blessed are the meek. They submit to God's authority. They realize that they have no righteousness and they submit to God. And then they hunger and they thirst for righteousness. They have a longing for the righteousness of God and they will pursue their longing. The first four blessings, the first four beatitudes, the first four characteristics... Explain the heart mentality, the worldview of the Christian. That's why this verse is not a worst-based salvation. It's just a continuation of the character of the Christian. And as we continue in the Beatitudes, they will get much more difficult and much more convicting. Much more convicting. We will begin to realize that we fail dramatically, perhaps even often, at these next three Beatitudes. Beatitudes. 
We fall short of displaying mercy. We fall short of being pure in heart. We fall short at being at peace. And we fall off the ladder. We fall right off the ladder. This is not to say that we re, are re-regenerated, but we start back at the first rung of the ladder. We realize that we lack the mercy of God. We realize that we lack a pure heart, that we lack peace. And we hate that we lack mercy. And so we submit to God's authority once again, and we hunger and we thirst for mercy, and we have just progressed the ladder all the way back up. You see how that works? And you will make progress on the ladder as that works. Why exactly are these Beatitudes more difficult? It's because they are the outward manifestations of the first four. The next three Beatitudes are the fruit of the Christian life. The first four are the root. They explain the being of the Christian, the being, the substance of the tree. And the next three Beatitudes explain the fruit of the Christian. The Christian displays mercy outwardly. They have a pure heart and they display that outwardly. They exhibit peace with others and peace with God. Those are all outward manifestations of the first four Beatitudes. So, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. We've got several questions that need answering. One, what is mercy? We need to define what exactly mercy is. We should probably figure out how we can be more merciful if Jesus is asking us to be more merciful. And we need to know exactly what it means that we will receive mercy. That's what the verse is teaching. We will receive mercy, but it's not works-based salvation. So what does it mean that we'll receive mercy? Certainly, we have already received mercy. We've been regenerated. The Spirit has already caused us to become meek, mourning, poor-in-spirit Christians who thirst for righteousness. That's who we are. Pagans are not these things. Pagans do not mourn their sin. They're not poor in spirit. They don't want the righteousness of God. These are all gracious gifts given by the Spirit to us from the first rung of regeneration. So what does it exactly mean that we will receive mercy in the future? Before we can answer any of our questions, we have to start at the character of God. I don't want to speak down to any of you. I assume we would all submit that God is merciful. I'm sure we would all make the claim. If you, if you wouldn't make that claim, we should probably be talking about other things. But I assume we would all see that God is merciful. But we need to be brutally clear about what that means. What is the mercy of God? God is certainly merciful. Scripture tells us so. So it's really not that big of a leap. Exodus 34, 5 through 6. You can go there. Right there at the beginning of your Bible. Moses is on Mount Sinai. They have just broken the first tablets. They broke the first covenant. But God will make them a new covenant, already displaying mercy. But God tells us exactly what he is. Exodus 34, verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him, that him is Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. 
And this is not a one-time occurrence in the Bible. In fact, this same wording occurs at least seven times in the Old Testament. I'll read you a few of the others. Psalm 86, verse 14 through 15. Psalm 86, verse 14. O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life. They do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Jonah, in chapter 4, at the very beginning of chapter 4 of Jonah, the city of Nineveh has just repented, and Jonah is not happy about it. It displeased Jonah exceedingly. He was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. It's amazing that Jonah is frustrated at God for this, but at least we know that God is merciful. The other references are Nehemiah 9.17, Psalm 103.8, and Psalm 145.8, and finally Joel 2.13. They all say the same thing, gracious, merciful, abounding in steadfast love. And if we know that God is merciful, we easily conclude that Jesus is the mercy of God made manifest because Jesus is God made manifest. Hebrews 2, you can turn there. Hebrews 2. We can narrow down our definition and focus on Jesus' mercy, which is the mercy of God. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. We'll start there. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted." We have yet to define mercy. All we've done is point out that the Bible says that God is merciful. And in this passage in Hebrews, we see how God, namely Jesus, displays his merciful character. Jesus partook in the same things. He became flesh and blood. He became like us so that he would be able to destroy sin and death. He became like the offspring of Abraham so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. And the ultimate goal of becoming man and doing these things was so that he could make propitiation for the sins of the people and deliver them from slavery and temptation. A quick definition on propitiation. It is a satisfaction. It is an appeasement. Today I was hungry. My hunger had to be satisfied. I had an oatmeal raisin cookie, and that oatmeal raisin cookie was the propitiation of my hunger. It was the satisfaction of my hunger. And that's why Jesus came. That is the supreme mercy of God. It is the gospel. 
that Jesus, fully God, became man, lived righteously, atoned for our sins, raised from the dead on the third day, and by faith, all of that is counted towards us. That's supreme mercy. That's the, that's the greatest act of mercy from eternity past to eternity future. Literally, everything resides on it. That is supreme mercy. And if we have, it's very easy to find mercy if we have the supreme act of mercy right in front of us. We just can look at it and pick out its parts. So now we can define mercy. Colin Smith says mercy is this. That mercy is a tender heart. It is a soft heart prepared to act for the good of others. It's a tender and soft heart prepared to act for the good of others. A.W. Pink says it more academically. He says it like this, that mercy is a holy compassion. It is a holy compassion of the soul whereby one is moved to pity and then goes to the relief of another in misery. Mercy is this. Mercy requires two sentient beings, two conscious beings. You can't be merciful by yourself. It requires at least two, two sentient beings. One is in misery. They're in suffering. They're in a predicament or a situation that they cannot fix themselves. They are stuck. They are brutally stuck. The other sees the helplessness of the first. They witness the helplessness of the first. And moved with compassion and a tender heart, the second acts for the good of the first. They act for the good of the first with the goal of relieving their misery or suffering, which they themselves are unable to do. That's how misery, or that's how mercy works. Requires two people. One's in a problem. The other wants to solve their problem. That's why Jesus is the supreme manifestation of mercy. Because sinners in their natural state are slaves to fear. They're slaves to sin, to temptation, to death, to the devil. All sorts of bad things that we cannot escape from ourselves. But Jesus, fully God, fully God, Jesus, fully God, set aside his glory as the supreme creator to become like the created. Jesus was not created. He became like the created. He became a man. And he lived righteously, something that we could not do because we are bound in slavery. And he hung on a tree that he himself sovereignly grew in the ground, and he took upon himself the judgment of God to atone for our sin, yet another thing we could not accomplish for ourselves. He rose from the dead, unattainable for us, unattainable. And because he did this, we can live righteously and we are seen as righteous. We no longer are under the wrath of God because Jesus made propitiation for us and we will rise from the dead and be with God forever. That is a lot of language of incapability on our own part and supreme capability on Jesus' part. We were in misery, being slaves to sin, in the most spectacular and deserved way. And Jesus, because of his own tender heart and love for us, 
fixed our problem in also the most spectacular and undeserved way, which is another note to make on mercy. It is never deserved. Mercy is only given. It is never deserved. If misery is or ever was deserved, it would fail to be misery by definition. It would cease to be mercy. It would then be justice. If you deserve something, it is just to be given that something. It is right to be given that something. That is why none of you look at your paycheck and you say, look at this gracious gift. None of you say that. I've earned this. This is my money. If they give you a boss, or if your boss gives you a bonus, oh, then that's a merciful gift. Thank you. But you earned your paycheck. That is not mercy. That is not a gift. That is what you earn. That's why the wages of sin is death. That language is very specific. It's what we earn. It's what we deserve. The wages. We bought death with our sin. Death is not mercifully given. It is earned. Life, regeneration, is unearned. Life is given. That's why it's mercy. Mercy is always good. It is never earned. It is only given. It is only given. Possibly the most beautiful passage in the Bible for this kind of language is Titus 3, 3 through 7. And please turn there because it is really pretty phenomenal. Titus 3. Titus 3, 3 through 7. It reads like this. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. There's a, there a theologian that I used to listen to, and he always would say it like this. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done in righteousness. Not because we met him halfway. Not because we took the proper steps forward and have elevated ourselves to the place of the deserving poor. But according to his own mercy. And he would say it like that. It's a powerful mercy. It's a a powerful mercy. Powerful. That is good. The gospel is the supreme act of mercy. It is supreme in in all of time. And it is only, only good. And it is only, only deserved. So now we know what mercy is, and we have the perfect example of mercy. Our first question is answered. What is mercy? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Jesus is telling us how the Christian lives. We are to be merciful. 
It is what God requires of us, not only in Matthew, but the entirety of Scripture. Genesis 1.26, he makes man in his own image. We are to be like God. God is merciful. The greatest moment in all of eternity displayed his mercy. We are to be merciful. You can't get any clearer on the subject than Micah 6, 7 through 8. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? Will he be pleased with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? The NIV says, instead of to love kindness, to love mercy. They're the same. Just later in Matthew chapter 9, verse 13, Jesus pokes fun at a Pharisee, makes fun of one of the Bible teachers of the day. He says, go learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. It's clear that Jesus desires and commands us to live a life with a hand full of mercy. But we certainly can't display the supreme mercy of God. We cannot atone for people's sin. We cannot raised from the dead of our own power. We can't live righteously of our own power. How are we to display mercy if we are mere humans? The story of Joseph is a great story. His brothers hated him. His brothers sold him into slavery, and he gets hauled off to Egypt, and God, being merciful to Joseph, raises Joseph to second in command. That is an amazing act of mercy, but it is not Joseph's mercy. Then, his conniving and sniveling brothers crawl to him, begging him for food. And they don't recognize him. And the reader, the reader has to think to themselves, oh, this is going to be good. Here we go. Joseph has these annoying brothers right in his grasp, right in his power. He has the opportunity to dispense poetic retribution at at the finest moment. And instead, with a soft hand and a tender heart, he gives them not only what they need, but vastly more. Vastly more. And they deserved none of it. The same is exactly, exactly true of Jesus. He does not only give us what we do not deserve, he gives us vastly more. David, being hunted by Saul in the book of Samuel, Saul hated David's success, hated his goodness, and he started chasing him all around the land with the goal to kill him. I'm going to kill David. But the tables flip in the strangest way when Saul goes in to relieve himself. He goes into a cave to relieve himself, and it's the exact cave where David is hiding. David has this pathetic king right in his grasp, or better yet, probably right in his cave. He's right there. And the reader, once again, thinks to themselves, oh, this is going to be good. He's going to get what he deserves. Saul's gone mad. He doesn't deserve to rule. This current moment, he's in a helpless position, ready to have his throat slit. But David spares his life. He refuses to do wrong against against God's anointed. Instead... He humbly goes to Saul and pleads with him. He says, Saul, I could have killed you. Why are you doing this? 
can we can we fix this, please? He, he tries to pull Saul from his insanity. David sees Saul's pathetic state, his poor state of mind, and he tries to pull him from it. He doesn't seek revenge, but shows mercy. Jesus gave a very in-depth parable on mercy. Luke 10, Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Don't let all this Bible flipping confuse you. We're still in Matthew 5, verse 7. Luke ten twenty five and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him, beat him, departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, whatever you Whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which one of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Mercy sees the misery of another. Misery that they cannot deliver themselves from. Mercy takes action for the good of the miserable one. Mercy always does good. It is never deserved. It is only given. Joseph, David, and the Samaritan all displayed mercy in this exact way, but in very different situations. And we're called to do the same. So how do we display mercy? I have six points of application where we can display mercy. One for nearly every day of the week. But there is one point on mercy that applies to all points on mercy because it affects all application. That comes from Romans 12, verse 8. It's talking about skills and how to practice skills. The one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Mercy can only be done with cheerfulness. If it is done begrudgingly, it ceases to be mercy. Does this change your understanding of what happened at the cross? That it was done with cheerfulness. So you can show mercy, the first point, you can show mercy with material needs. 1 John chapter 3, 
verse 17 says this, But if anyone has the world's goods, money, items, materials, and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? If you have money, if you have items that would be of benefit to other people in misery, you can show mercy by sharing or by giving. You can show mercy in a very practical and tactile way. You can help with material needs. Second point, you can show mercy in spiritual struggles. Jude verses 21 and 22. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. That is a very interesting phrase. Have mercy on those who doubt. True Christians, regenerate Christians, people who are justified before God, will have doubts. They will have doubts. Some people have more faith than others. Faith is a gift. Some people have more of it. Some people have less of it. And God never looks at a flickering candle and snuffs it out. Neither should we. We should help those struggling with doubt. If somebody fails to understand an, impoint, an, impor, an important point of doctrine, we are to help them get to the other side of it. We don't make fun of them, and we don't snuff their flame out. We don't snuff their faith flame out. We encourage them and we help them. We show mercy on those who doubt. Third, you can show mercy in right old mess-ups. Right old mess-ups. 1 Peter 4.8 Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. That multitude speaks about the number. This should be happening often. If somebody makes an embarrassing screw-up or mistake, a hard heart makes a big deal about it. They point it out, and they blow it far out of proportion. But a merciful person, a soft-hearted person, makes much less of it. They minimize it. It's just a small sin. You're, it's okay. You're okay. Zach Clark today missed the dartboard three times in darts. I'm not going to make a big deal about it. <laughs> it was just a small little mess up. It's not that big of a deal. Before you, before you jump on me for being hypocritical, Zach lost a bet, and I had permission to tell that joke. Okay. That's true. He, he, he missed the dartboard. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> yes. No, he's not. He's not <laughs> oh, very good. Very good. Very good. Charles Spurgeon said, Charles Spurgeon said this, I recommend to you, brothers and sisters, to always have available one blind eye and one deaf ear. Indeed, usually my blind eye is the best one I have, and my deaf ear is the best one I have. We, we turn away from small sins that other people commit. We don't make a big fuss out of them, but we minimize them. We cover over them, just as Jesus did for our sin. Fourth, probably one of the most interesting, you can show mercy by not having unreasonable expectations. Psalm 103, verse 13 and 14. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. Everybody else is dust also. I am not the only dust person. 
and to have unreasonable expectations of your spouse or of your friend or of your coworker is not an act of mercy. But to have minimized expectations of them is. Don't expect to be never let down. People will let us down. They will hurt us. They will do annoying things because they are dust. Don't have unreasonable expectations. Just because they are a Christian does not mean they are the Christ. They are becoming like him, but they'll never be like him in this life, fully like him. Fifth, you can show mercy by forgiving and not taking revenge. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Some people sin directly against us. It happens. They sin directly against us. And don't be surprised if you have the opportunity to take revenge. Joseph, in an amazing plan of God, was put right in the situation where he could have taken amazing revenge. So was David. And if we take revenge, if you or I take revenge, why would we ever think that Jesus would not take revenge on us? If we have sinned against him and we've broken his law, are we really going to take revenge against other people and expect him to not take revenge against us? Forgive other people. Let their sins against you pass by. Finally, possibly the most important, you can show mercy to lost souls. Jude, verse 23. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. If we realize the mercy that God has had upon us, we will want that mercy to spread to other people. And we will evangelize. You will talk to people about God. You will share the gospel because you desperately want them to be justified before God. We tell people the gospel because believing comes from hearing. It's how Jesus spreads his regeneration. Charles Spurgeon also said, If sinners be damned, let them crawl into hell over our dead bodies, which is a very powerful quote that I'm sure none of us live up to on the day to day. But it, but it poses the importance of evangelism. I, I, I apologize deeply because I only had six points of application. I so desperately wanted to reach the number of completion, one every day of the week, seven. Uh, I don't have a biblical reference for, for you, but I would submit to you this as the seventh. Allow others to practice mercy towards you. We can become prideful and not want any help from people. But when you fail to let somebody practice mercy towards you, you rob them of a great gift. If I am sinking in quicksand and somebody throws me a vine in a very Indiana Jones fashion and I refuse to grab it, I will die, but I have robbed them of an opportunity to practice mercy and I'm not sure which one is worse. I'm not sure. Allow others to practice mercy towards you. Last and final question. Why does the verse say that we will receive mercy? If it's not works-based salvation, why does it say we will receive mercy if we are merciful? We have already received mercy. 
We've been regenerated by the grace of God, and we've been given countless good gifts, spiritual and material. This verse is not teaching that we save ourselves, so what does it mean that we will receive mercy? By saying those who are merciful will receive mercy, it is making it strikingly clear that those who do not practice mercy will not receive mercy. There is no mercy for those who are not merciful. If someone does not practice mercy, it is because they have never received mercy. They have never received the mercy of God. If they have never received mercy, they won't receive mercy from God in the future. James 2.13 says it. James 2.13. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. If someone does not practice mercy as God practices mercy, they have never received the supreme mercy of regeneration and of atonement. They are still condemned by their sins. And when Jesus comes again, they will be separated from God's people and cast into the lake of fire. We have received the supreme mercy of God. We have been regenerated and by faith have put, and by grace, have put our faith in the atoning work of Jesus and we're justified before God. We have received supreme mercy, therefore we act out mercy. And when Jesus comes again, Here's where our mercy comes in. When Jesus comes again, we will receive the consummation of the seed of regeneration. We will, see, we will receive the consummation of our regeneration. We will receive glorification, the finishing of our mercy. We will be glorified with God. Regeneration and the atonement is the seed of mercy placed in us, but we still fight our flesh. But when Jesus comes again and takes away his people, we will be glorified and will be made like God, and we will be that way forever. That is the mercy that we will receive. It is an end days mercy. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this time. I pray that you would work in our hearts, uh, Lord, that we would know that this is true, that we would know the mercy that you've had upon us. And I pray, um, Lord, that we would really uh, thirst for more of it. Um, and Lord, I pray that we would practice mercy towards others. We fail, I fail miserably at practicing mercy towards others, Lord. And, and I pray that others in this room would be aware of how they fail at practicing mercy, but they would be comforted that you have shown us mercy and that would set in us a desire to show mercy towards others. In your name, amen.